Hi, I'm Joanna Martin, and you're listening to JP Morgan's Market Matters. In today's episode of the podcast, we will review global equity market structure trends in Q1 2021. Joining us on this session, we have our global equities market structure specialists, Alex Gordetsky, Head of America's Liquidity Products and Equities Market Structure, Maria Salamanca-Maya, EMEA Market Structure, and Greg Wirtz, Head of APAC Market Structure and Liquidity Strategy. Amidst the market volatility and market volume growth that marked 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic also brought about a spike in retail trading volumes globally. The growth in retail activity has had a lasting impact on market structure. In the US, it has driven the rise of off-exchange activity and shifted market share among exchanges. Moreover, we all witnessed the retail-linked short-sell drama in January and February. In Asia, a region that's always had a relatively high level of retail participation, the proportion of retail turnover remains elevated. So we'll spend some time today discussing how these trends are developing in the various regions. In addition, we'll also be spending some time focusing on the European trading landscape and the evolution of regulation in a post-Brexit world as the industry looks out for divergence versus convergence in how the UK and Europe handle their review of MIFID II and beyond. So let's dive right in. Alex, Maria, and Greg, could I start by asking each of you to provide us with an update on the main market structure happenings in your respective regions over the past quarter? Happy to. So starting off in the Americas and the U.S., Q1, as you noted, Joanna, has seen record volumes. In Q1, ADV was 14.65 billion shares a day. That is up 40% over Q4 2020 and up 33% over Q1 2020 when we saw the start of the COVID pandemic and the height of the volatility that ensued. Daily traded value has also been at record highs, up 30% over Q4 2020 and up 24% over Q1 2020. Notably, this past quarter, we saw six of the top 10 value traded days in history and three of the top 10 share traded days in history. Most notably, we've seen the two highest single-day share-traded record volumes, January 27th and January 28th, achieving 24.8 billion shares and 20.1 billion shares, respectively. The third highest comes back to 2008. With the growth of retail activity, continued growth of retail activity in Q1, we've also seen a continuation of trading in sub-dollar names that began in Q4 2020 and has persisted on through January and into February of Q1 of this year. As Joanna noted, retail activity has been a key driver of market volume growth. And we've seen that retail activity to persist throughout 2020 and into the beginning of Q1 of this year. Most notably, we saw that come to a culmination on January 27th and 28th with the events around GameStop, AMC, and other stocks. Since the events of late January, we've actually seen a reduction in retail activity as we look at overall market volumes, as well as the segment that's trading off-exchange and specifically in the OTC segment of the off-exchange market. A second focus in Q1 has been around the SEC and the nomination of Gary Gensler. And so with that, they focus on a number of both prior and new topics that he'll pick up with his administration. Specifically, both the SEC's order regarding modernized governance structure for the NMS SIPs, along with their adopted rules to modernize the SIP infrastructure, are facing court challenges by the exchanges. Before the events of January, the expectation was that Chairman Gensler would look at cryptocurrency, boardroom diversity, 
and ESG as key focus points. Now, with January 27th still fresh in our memories, we're sure to see other actions potentially around payment for order flow, execution quality transparency for retail activity, and other topics become the key focus point. Lastly, order types have continued to be a focal point in Q1. IEX has continued to see growth of D-limit order types, the discretionary limit that was launched in Q4 of last year and continues to gain market share through the use of that order type. CBOE's BYXX received the approval for the periodic auctions. Already live in EMIR with CBOE, this will help to attempt to bring liquidity off exchange and into the exchange market space for a larger block activity. Maria? Thank you, Alex. In the European region, we observed some significant liquidity shifts in the first quarter of this year, starting in January. The first important shift came with the end of the Brexit transition period when the EU's Brexit share trading obligation became effective. This resulted in restrictions on European MIFID firms, which for the most part are now limited to trading EU shares on EU venues. With the UK outside of the EU, we observed a shift in the liquidity of EU shares from UK venues into EU-based venues. To provide some context, in December 2020, UK-based venues represented around 27% of activity in EU shares, and this now stands at under 1.5%. The second important liquidity shift took place in early February, when we saw a proportion of activity in Swiss shares moving into UK venues. This is tangentially related to Brexit. Now that the UK is out of the EU, the country can now issue equivalence decisions independently. Therefore, one of the first things to take place post-Brexit was the mutual equivalence decisions between the UK and Switzerland, which allowed UK venues to offer access to Swiss shares for the first time since mid-2019. So if we look at the proportion of activity in Swiss names post-equivalence, UK MTFs represented well over 15%. I think these two developments were the most important events impacting European market structure in the first quarter. But I would say that there's a lot of attention on developments in other regions and how some of the things that Alex has alluded to around the US, for example, could manifest in Europe. Greg? Thanks, Maria. The stock markets in Asia have had an incredibly busy start to the year. And when I say that, it's in the context that last year was record setting in its own right. When COVID news first hit, it really hit the newspapers in Asia first and the headlines here. But every subsequent quarter from kind of Q1 of last year has seen incremental growth in equities turnover. And Q1 of 2021 was no different. And it wasn't up just a little bit. Turnover was up almost 30% from the already record-setting Q4. So what are driving these big trends? Some of it's the different types of participants coming into the market. We've seen some really interesting shifts around that in January, particularly in Korea. There was a a large amount of retail participation. And in whole, that market became the largest in Asia, excluding China, for the first time, surpassing Japan, the normal bellwether there. More lately, that's also been occurring in Taiwan. In Hong Kong, There were three market structure changes that were worth noting. The first is that there's a Hong Kong stamp tax change, which was announced and had a quite big influence on the day. That goes into effect in August and raises the transaction cost in terms of stamp tax by 30%. The second was the OFAC sanctions, which is predominantly hitting Hong Kong companies and to some extent China companies, and has been a major focus among investors. 
And the third has been the growth in Hong Kong secondary listings. Typically, these are Chinese internet companies that are listed in the U.S., but they're adding secondary trading in Hong Kong, which has been a big boost to Hong Kong turnover. Thanks, Greg. So I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about the retail phenomenon as a theme. As highlighted in the intro and Alex, as you've just explained, U.S. retail growth was really one of the biggest stories of 2020, and it's remained a key topic in, in Q1 2021. So what is it that you think propelled this trend, Alex, and do you think this will continue? So I'd say a combination of factors have really propelled this trend, and some of them were put into place before the events of 2020 and the COVID pandemic. And so I think part of this underlying driver of retail growth has really been starting to formulate even before the last year occurred. But certainly the COVID-related lockdowns and stimulus payments contributed significantly to the rapid rise in the retail activity. Before 2020, two key changes began to occur around the retail trading. First, the full elimination of commissions for online trading. We saw that in October. And then CBOE's EdgeX's retail priority focus and the introduction of the retail priority order in November, those two were key factors in focusing on growing retail participation in the market. And so with the lockdowns as well, obviously, without having sports events, trips, or school even to attend, that really propelled the retail activity into the market. And with the stimulus payments, that provided potential liquidity sources for retail participants to begin interacting in the market. So certainly, I think there are both the contributing factors around the COVID pandemic, but also factors put into place even before to grow retail participation that together propelled that trend. Whether it continues, I think we've seen that retail has and will continue to remain a elevated level in the market. We have seen, as I noted in the last few weeks, a reduction in off-exchange trading. Non-ATS volume has been about two-thirds of the off-exchange volume it climbed upwards of almost over 80% of off-exchange volume in January and February. We certainly see a reduction of that now occurring in March and even April. Retail participation is quieted down from the heights of 2020, but certainly still remains elevated. But we also see that retail is focusing now on potentially other asset classes, such as crypto, in the shorter term. Greg, you talked about the growth of retail in Korea as a key trend. How is this materializing there and elsewhere in the region? I think we see the same trends and a lot of the same rationale as well in Asia. Really, everywhere that we can track retail participation figures, there's been an increase. That can be new account openings, retail margin utilization, or just the trading activity when retail is segmented. The global reasons you mentioned are also true for the most part in there's more people at home, there's more social media media focus around equities trading, especially as some of these markets enter into really lofty highs. There's low return from deposit and interest rate products. And you know, we've even heard regulators have considered that the lack of sports betting and lack of other kind of sports activities has also kind of put some of that activity when you think about the gamification of markets into the equities space. We've seen, as we mentioned in Korea, There was a really large increase in retail participation that has changed the market composition considerably that started last year. But retail participation is up in Japan, it's up in Thailand, it's up in India, it's up in Taiwan. And and even very recently this month in April, we've seen a noticeable bump for new account openings and trading 
turnover has really accelerated from the, the retail community. Maria, the same question to you. We know following the market volatility triggered by retail investors in the US, ESMA published a number of communications on retail investing in Europe. Can you talk to us about what we are seeing on the retail front in Europe and what ESMA and other regulatory bodies have been saying? Yes, the growth of retail activity in Europe is definitely an area of focus for European regulators and other stakeholders. Retail engagement in Europe is not as high as it is in the US and other parts of the world, but there is a recognition that activity increased significantly in 2020 as a result of the pandemic. Interestingly, this has coincided with the emergence of a number of zero commission retail brokers. So following the events that transpired in the US last January, European regulators are looking very closely at the European landscape and assessing the possibility of something similar taking place in Europe. For this reason, on the 17th of February, ESMA published a statement to remind retail investors of the risks of investing and urging them to be careful when using information from social media to inform their investment decisions. In addition, ESMA's chair also noted that practices such as payment for order flow will need to be assessed as well. In the UK, in contrast, the FCA has established that payment for order flow likely results in conflict of interests, and therefore they expect UK firms to steer clear of these type of arrangements. I would say that given the overall regulatory focus on investor protection and the capital markets in the EU, as well as market innovation and competitiveness in the UK, we would expect this theme to be carefully considered by all the relevant regulators. Thank you, Maria. Picking up on another topic, moving on to talk about fragmentation. We're at the beginning of the conversation. You shared some details on the post-Brexit liquidity landscape and the increased fragmentation with the new EU trading venues. What is happening now in terms of fragmentations and are things still in flux? How much liquidity has actually migrated? And are there points in the future where we could see further changes? We have seen a virtually a full migration of liquidity in EU shares from UK venues to EU venues following Brexit and some liquidity from Swiss markets into UK venues. In terms of fragmentation, this has meant that the trends around the use of different types of execution mechanisms have been evolving. So whilst at the start of the year, we observed the market share of primaries increase as this changes started to take place, we are now starting to see an increase in the usage of dark pools and periodic auctions and a fall in the overall share of systematic internalizers. So we monitor these numbers very closely and I would encourage JP Morgan clients to get in touch should they wish to receive our regular publications on market fragmentation. With regards to the forward-looking side of things, I would say that there is indeed a possibility that we see some degree of change in the current trends. And this is very much tied to the expectations around regulatory developments. Both the UK and the EU are currently assessing the trading landscape post-Brexit and determining the best ways to refine the current MIFID II regulatory frameworks. We have seen some areas where both jurisdictions have started to diverge. And I think one of the examples that comes to mind is the double volume cap regime, where the FCA has recently issued a statement to the effect that following the suspensions that are currently in place, the UK will be administering caps and suspensions when necessary, as opposed to automatically every month. So I would say that at this point, things remain very much in flux. And certainly the liquidity landscape will need to adapt to any changes in the regulatory framework across the UK and the EU. Thanks, Maria. 
Alex, in the US in 2020, you saw the arrival of three new trading venues, all with differentiated models, taking the number of exchanges to 16. Can you talk to us a bit about some of the key observation as to how these venues are faring now? Absolutely. We saw three exchanges go live in 2020 among the pandemic. And while the pandemic brought about its own challenges, such as the delays around going live from potentially Q1 and Q2 of 2020 until Q3 and Q4, all three exchanges were live by the end of the year and now are continually trading on a day-in, day-out basis. Starting with long-term stock exchange, the first exchange that have gone live in 2020, they continue to capture small amounts of liquidity daily and continue to be a diminished amount of market share, but that's also not their key focus. Their key focus is to really interact with the primary exchanges, NYSE and NASDAQ, on the listings front, which we expect them to take up in earnest now that 2020 is behind and their go-live is completed. We expect listings to be their primary focus going forward. Second, Members Exchange, or Memex, has been the leader in market share gains among these three venues. Now, trading at just under 2% in Q1 and now over 2% in Q2, they've continued to see market share climb, especially driven by two key factors. One being the continued adjustment and routing among firms. Having fully completed their go live in late October of last year, right before the elections, and then the volatility related to the end of the year and technology freezes, a number of firms weren't able to fully connect and set up all of their routing logic to Memex or MyX for that case before the end of the year. So we're seeing some of those firms complete that routing technology, routing changes in the beginning of this year, as well as BestX analysis that allows them to increase the amount of flow that they're sending to Memex and MyX in this quarter or this year. With that, Memex also introduced pricing changes in February that we see has a significant driver on their market share growth. And so we see their market share significantly increase once those pricing changes went in in February. With MyX Pearl, they're continuing to also focus on growth and market share. And while their numbers continue to be below half a percent in market share, they're continuing to see daily increases in that market share gains. Again, backed by a number of HFT and market makers, we expect that over the course of 2021, that those firms will continue to increase their activity on MyX Pearl. And that I think over the course of the year, we will continue to see their growth as well in market share as those firms become more comfortable, as well as other firms become more comfortable with trading on MyX's platform as an equity exchange. MyX runs three options exchanges already. So a lot of these firms are familiar with their technology and their platform and have seen significant market share gains in the options world. So we expect that over time, similar behavior will occur with the equities and we'll see those market share gains, especially from those firms that have bought in into MyX's equity rights offering. Thank you, Alex. And Greg, can you talk to us a little bit about the ChaiX acquisition by SIBO and APAC expansion of the bids block trading? Sure. So ChaiX has a presence in two markets in Asia. In Australia, they are one of the two main equity exchanges, and they've had considerable gains in market share to be a real competitive force in Australia. They're also active in Japan, a couple different products, but they run essentially a, a lit equity venue there and have for a number of, of years. You know, holistically, exchange consolidation has been very slow in Asia, and generally there have been quite a few failures. The Hong Kong exchange famously tried to announce a bid for the London Stock Exchange that didn't go through. And this is going to be the first, I guess, major acquisition 
of equity trading venues by a U.S. player in Asia. So it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, particularly the technology innovation or the product offering or things that have been successful for U.S. exchanges are brought in to the Asia market structure. The key one here, and they've already alluded to it, is the bids block trading product, where that doesn't exist so much from an industry consortium or a centralized player in the region. So the U.S. has quite a few of those. Europe has quite a few of those that, that try to centralize across the market. doesn't really exist as much in Asia, and certainly not from a, like an exchange-type provider solution, often more done through agency brokers. Liquidity remains a challenging aspect in Asia, especially when you're trying to move blocks. So we would anticipate this is something that you know the buy side would be quite comfortable and, and keen to, to see growth in from a commercial standpoint. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you all for joining me. It's been really great to hear your perspectives. And to our listeners, please stay tuned for more episodes of Market Matters. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, and do not constitute research, a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures. Thank you.